Hello there, and welcome to Sweet Child of Time. Today we're doing 1899, episode 7, entitled The Storm. I'm here with my co-host and first mate, Nate. Ahoy there, Nate. Howdy, Steve. Is it still going okay, Nate? (laughs) It's going. Every day, a little bit more. What is going is we just released our bonus episode where you and me and Lindsay talked about the cancellation of 1899. We're luckily here at the very end. We're, we got two more recaps to do, and we're going to continue recapping this as if the show is going to continue. It's probably going to change our perspectives a little bit, but I'm still going to um, speculate and assume that this story is going to continue in some form. Just FYI for you, Nate. <laughs> All right, that's fair. And I guess for what we're going to do, of course, this podcast, A Sweet Shot of Time, 1899, and Wheel of Time recaps. So I'm still doing Wheel of Time, of course. This podcast will still, you know, be released. But as of 1899, obviously, we won't be doing that anymore, unless by some miracle, uh, 1899 is released or some form of it is released in some way. And Nate has nodded his head saying that, he would join me on that journey. Correct, Nate? Correct. But I'm always on the lookout for other shows to recap. And I've kind of speculated doing uh, doing Dark, which I would have to do with Lindsay Dunn, if that's what I was to do, because she's already recapped it in writing form. So she'd be a great co-host for that. thought about doing Little House on the Prairie. And the reason I think about Little House on the Prairie, I've been asked that by... People such as Nate, like, why are you even interested in that really boring old show? Because I thought, I think it's a wholesome <laughs> show about family values taking place in the 19th century. And I'm very interested in uh, just how they lived in small communities at that point in time. And I would angle it the same way I angled this podcast, where I would, you know, research a few things from each episode. You know, where do they go to the bathroom? You know, how do the crops do? How often they have to do, you know, certain tasks? How often they go to the store, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm really fascinated about that kind of thing. And plus, I was a very impressionable age when that show came on. So watching that with my sister as a little kid, that was like the first show I was ever into, basically. If you were to do another podcast, Nate, besides 1899, You've talked about doing podcasts, um, like a music podcast, right? Yeah, I'd consider doing a music podcast, or uh, I could. I've said it, I beat this horse enough, but I could probably consider doing like an old, uh, like an old cartoon podcast. Like I grew up with my my grandparents would put like the Flintstones and the Jetsons and things like that on. So now that I'm older, I haven't watched those in probably well over a decade. So it'd be interesting to go back and see how something like the Jetsons and their style of humor compares to something from say, like the nineties, like Ren and Stimpy to maybe even like a modern cartoon, like whatever those dang kids listen or watch to watch on cartoon network. I think it's bluey now. I think everybody likes bluey. That's what I hear about a lot. I don't even know what that is. I don't either. I just hear that my kids are too old to watch kids shows now. <laughs> you're never too old. No, you're right. But they're not on TV constantly like, like they were when they were eight. And there was always cartoons on the TV at that time. 
That's fair. Now I got, I got something for the viewers, the listeners. If you guys wanted to hear us, Steve and I, do another podcast, another whatever it would be, a review or a um, – if you had some kind of topic that you wanted us to do, write us, write Steve, and uh, tell us what you'd want us to do because I enjoy doing this with Steve every week, and it would be cool that – you know, we could get a couple suggestions and see if anything sparks sparks a new thought in us. Yeah, good call. I like that. Sweet child of time pod at gmail.com is where you could do that kind of thing. Awesome, Nate. Well, shoot, man. Let's go ahead and um, do our corrections first. I have a couple of things in the corrections department here. Um, first off, Sebastian, I he is the first mate of the Kerberos last episode. I was calling him the second mate because for whatever reason, I was thinking that Franz was the first mate. I got them confused. Please don't yell at me. Another thing I said that was uh, wrong is I said that all those ships were dry docked in the shipyard. And of course that's not right. They're all floating on water. They're not dry docked. I know what dry docking is. This is not it. So I'm sorry for that one. And this is not a correction, but this is more of something to point out to you, Nate. Um, Back on episode two and three, we were talking about corpses and we were talking about your experience with corpses. And you said that you kind of wish that the showrunners had done corpses a little more realistic because everything else was realistic. Um, Come to find out, we're here at episode seven now. There's a reason those corpses don't look like corpses. It's because they're not corpses. These people are just basically turned off. Ada was just turned off by that machine. So she was not really dead. She was just a NPC to begin with. So right. I don't know. I don't know if you, if you realize that or not. I guess I didn't think that far back, but it makes sense now. Yeah. I, I went back and I was listening to some of our older episodes on my computer here. And that's something that I came across and it made me think, Hey, I know why they're not all bloated because that's not part of the program. (laughs) That's not what, uh, Henry Singleton wanted to portray. So yeah, speaking of the Singletons, let's go ahead and get into our episode here. We start episode seven, the storm with some sexy time. We got Maura and Daniel and they're in Daniel's apartment or somewhere they're at. And you know, pillow talk, that kind of thing. Um, I got a lot of notes here, but did you have any thoughts about this this scene and up to when Maura walked out of the room? Um, no, not particularly. I mean, I think it just kind of built on the... It was just another way to maybe make Maura believe that her and Daniel were really married. I didn't really think too hard on it. Okay. I just took me that like they, their disagreement about, you know, where reality lies, whether it's in your head, which is what Mar believes, or whether it's something outside of you that makes reality, which is what Daniel believes. And I don't know, I guess that was the, the, the biggest gist of their conversation is if, you know, are they in a reality or a construct of one? And of course, by the time the scene ends, you know, we know it's a, not a reality because he's in the pyramid world. We're in Daniel's dream world thoughts, so to speak. 
because he finds Mara's um, shirt out there when he goes out, the shirt that she put on. And then we hear the voices go off saying that, you know, they're initiating shutdown and whatnot. It's, uh, I don't know, interesting. But he wakes up from his dream, because so that's how we know this is a Daniel dream, Daniel-based reality dream, because he wakes up and uh, he's in room 1011. And, you know, of course, it's Mora's voice telling him to wake up, just like always. His eyes were already open, just like always. Um, he starts screaming, Mara, the shutdown has begun. Everyone will die again. Where is my device? Like a little kid. Like, where's, where's my phone, mommy? I can't do anything without my phone. <laughs> Helpless little baby Daniel without his phone. Sorry. <laughs> but he can hear the storm in there. We can hear the storm inside the room that he's at. And it's timed really weird where she locked him in that room. And then I guess like he immediately laid down and shut off and then had that dream memory of him and Mara. And then he wakes up and she's still right there outside that door. So I don't think a lot of time has really passed here. Not enough time for him to have like a full fledged dream or a full fledged experience. I wouldn't think. No. Well, anyway, Mara takes that gateway. She ends up back in her room again. Um, that's where she heads off to. And the first thing we see that she sees too is the book, the awakening by Kate Chopin, Chopin Chopin. And that's one of the key things that I researched this episode. Um, so I don't want to spoil anything because if I talked about what's significant about this book, I would spoil the book completely. So I'm going to save that for the very end. So spoiler coming about that book. Um, she's out there at the storm. She takes off her necklace for comfort. I think she's going to drop it overboard. <laughs> That's a Did you think that too? Yeah. I'm always worried about real life things like that. When somebody does something, I'm always like, don't drop it. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Well, we're going to go back into the the bridge, I suppose we call that, where the big wheel is. <laughs> um, everybody's got their perspective. Tove says we need to find the captain. Virginia's like rifling through drawers for whatever reason. Um, Ivan and Ramiro are talking about God. Um, Clements just thinks they should warn everybody, but nobody is grabbing the wheel. They're, did you think that maybe they somebody should grab it? They said someone should steer the ship. And I was like, um, maybe if just one of you grabbed it, that's better than just letting it roll around. So, I mean, I thought figure so it too. out. Yeah. Heather, yeah. Heather kind of gave me the gist that like, well, if you don't know how to steer a ship, you're probably going to do more damage if you try to steer it. But I think it would instinct would be to give it a shot. Yeah. I mean, at that rate, what do you have to lose? <laughs> right. Well, I guess everybody's life, but well. <laughs> let's see, where are we at from there? We're running off to get help. Virginia says we need to find the captain. We need to find Mora doctor situation there. She's obviously unwell and Clements can tell. Uh, she's like clutching that hand like nobody's business. 
But back in our room, 1011 with Daniel, though, he's still stuck there. My prediction last week was the boy was going to come unlock the door for him and get him out. It's not exactly what happens. He fashions a tool out of a cabinet of some sort and pries open the walls and finds a wiry passageway, um, which the wires really throw me off because the, the wires make me feel that it's real, that you need to like hook up all these wires to each of these panels for, in order for them to work. So it makes sense that there's all these snaky wires and all these cables and stuff. But if it's all just a simulation inside somebody's mind, why do you need all these big props and wires and <laughs> boats? But is it inside someone's mind? Because I guess not. <laughs> I mean, this is this is where those Matrix vibes really come in. I mean, we don't know if this is like. We don't know if this is just in maybe it's in some small little sphere. Right. And he's able to watch it. I mean, he still has the cameras and things like that. But we also don't know if it's, you know, maybe it's a massive facility. Or maybe he's the one that's in a small facility and the rest of the world is the simulation. We we don't know. I'm fascinated just by the question because I know, again, based on Dark, they brought up all kinds of strange things like this that you would think that just don't jive with each other. But then the explanation is there. And that's what I'm looking for is like, is if this is a simulation, why all the wires? Why all the fuss? <laughs> so let's see. He finds his wires, new passageway. We're done with Daniel. We're going on some more. We're going to do a lot of jumping around this episode because a lot of stuff happens in this episode. We shouldn't, I should have mentioned that at the top. This was a pretty, uh, pretty action packed one. Um, anyway, Mara and Sebastian kind of find each other on their journeys. You know, where's the captain? Where's the boy? Uh, Mara then runs in like, it's kind of strange that they don't like team up at that point. I guess it's because they both kind of have their own secret agendas and they don't want to tell each other about them. But in that normal situation, like a normal time where you're having a normal panic and all this stuff happened, you're going to cling on to any person you run past in the hallway and be like, Oh, tell me what's been going on with you. Let's figure some stuff out. And right. <laughs> instead they're hot in secrets. <laughs> But she goes and finds Mora in the frostbite. That's what you called it. It's a very appropriate term. Mora just straight up has no idea. Can't tell her anything, basically. And um, leaves Virginia frantic. I don't like this. I don't like my girl in this position. I like, I like her when she's scheming and she's... I don't like her when she's pimping and like examining <laughs> Ling Yi and making her feel weird, but... I like when she's at the table smoking her cigarettes and scheming. I don't like her panicking about her hand. <laughs> but yes, yeah, that's right. Vir um, Virginia gets really confused here because Mora is all like, oh, the captain must be in his dream. I'm going to go look into his memory. And then Virginia's like, wait, my hand is frostbitten. What are you, what are you talking about? <clears throat> you see that look on her face like she just doesn't know what to think of that statement. So here we got... Our first peek at if this show were to be continued and if the show were to be a success, the 1899, you know, P 
PS5 game. This would be our next level with Sebastian running through the corridors with the crystals coming out and you got to dodge the crystals and stuff. I think I was thinking about it. This would make a pretty darn good game where you have all these hidden like mini games and telegraphs to like decipher and then go punch the code in somewhere else and then get trapped in a dream world somewhere and have to reason your way out and then the crystals appear. I don't know. It's kind of like Portal. It's a big puzzle game. Yeah, I, I guess. I don't, I don't know Portal, but it seems like 1899 could be that if they wanted. But for right now, Sebastian's running for his life. He knows those crystals, I guess, hurt. Uh, he grabs an emergency iPad out of some random drawer somewhere. There's an iPad in there that I guess has been there this whole time. Oh, from the doctor's office. Oh, is that where that is? Yeah, it looks like he's in the doctor's office and he takes out one of the drawers and yeah. pulls it through the, the back of the drawer. Okay, I couldn't I couldn't identify that room because I'd never seen it before. But that, okay. Yeah, and he has this little touch screen. You can like look through the whole ship and scroll about. It was pretty modern looking, I would say. <laughs> but we're going to switch back to Mara again. Lots of switching back. She is going to Ike's memory. She's looking everywhere for the captain at this point. And the house is not burnt here. She goes to the house and runs into Ike's wife, who is a malfunctioning robot. Very. You said in our bonus episode with me and Lindsay, you were talking about how this show is so much like other shows. It's true. I can't deny it that this show is like Westworld uh, meets Lost meets dark um, meets time bandits meets the Truman show meets the matrix all rolled into one. Can you think of any other examples I missed there? Cause I think I got them all. I think you nailed it. <laughs> so yeah, she's definitely a Westworld robot here and Mara snakes away from her. Daniel meanwhile is crawling through those wires and he comes to a new hatch, a new place we've never seen before. And he's at the place where he finds the rosary on the ground and the well in that church up on the hill. And you probably know whose dream world this is, right? Oh, I'm with the well on. That's not the, it's not the same shot with the little hut. Is it? No, that's a different one. That's in the snow. Um, I gotta say that's either Angel or Ramiro. Or both, yes. I think that's their well, backstory. Or both. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Because um, we didn't see that, so I can only assume that that's where, that's where he is now. Uh, he slips down the well. I guess there's like a secret staircase down the well. I don't know how he knew that, but he knew that. And Henry is watching this whole thing unfold on screen. His little cool TV screens. Let's see, the whole crew at this point is running around panicking. Um, when I say the whole crew, I mean Ramiro, Clements, and the Tove family. I call them the Tove family because she's the star. I don't know. Um, Ramiro is handing out life preservers. I guess he's thinking they can just jump overboard and they'll be fine. And luckily, Anchor is like, it's going to freeze. Probably not a great idea. Um, they're just grasping at straws at what to do at this point. They don't really know. So Ramiro and Clements run off to go find more people. 
and then our um, Ivan and Anchor crew here, for some reason, decide that, like this hallway is where we're going to die on our hill. <laughs> like they refuse to go any further from this point. So this is where they stayed. And they said a little tearful goodbye to Tove. Um, anything about this scene that um, you wanted to comment on or did you think anything about this? Well, this is the same scene where Tove pretty much just goes, Mom, you're crazy. That's right. Yes. So I got, I mean, I got a little bit of a kick out of that because in a way, I, you know, I kind of think that the mom in a way deserves it, but also knowing Tove's backstory, like you can kind of sympathize with maybe why she is as fanatic as she is. Um, I did not necessarily like it because I kind of thought Anchor would would leave her and go with Tove. And then maybe Anchor, because I've slow, not that he's done a whole lot, but I've slowly started to have Anchor grow on me a little bit, especially with his talk with Ramiro last time, mm-hmm. last last episode, I think. That's right. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I kind of started to respect him a little bit as a character, thought you know, good values. He didn't want to become a priest. He was a farmer, but he did it because it's what made his wife happy. And he thought it was best for the family. And I mean, I guess I have to, in a way, respect him for, you know, going down with his wife. But at the same time, it's, I don't want to see him die. It's selfish. (laughs) It is. You want to be Henry Singleton about it. You're like, don't, don't have your silly feelings get in your way. Just run to safety anchor. Yeah. Right on. Exactly. I would I I'd like to think that I would probably do the same thing Anchor did in this situation and hang back with Heather if she wanted me to do that. I really don't know and I really hope I never have to be in that situation where I have to make one of these calls where I have Just don't like get on a boat. I have like Caleb in one hand and Charlotte in the other and I got to let one of them go to save the other. I don't want to be in that situation. That's what TV shows are for. <laughs> Just don't get on a boat. It, Done. Thank you. I <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Yeah, let's see. I had did have that written down here that um, this is where Tove confronts her mom pretty harshly, and then they leave. And she does say something pretty smart. She says that man is not a priest. Uh, she's right, but then she says that woman is a whore. And she's wrong, 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 wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's where we leave them, praying in the hallway. Um, We're skipping back to Mara. She finds her way back, and she finds the photo. She finds her way back from, where did we last leave her at? At Ike's place. So she comes back from Ike's portal way to Ike's room. And she sees the photo of Ike's family there and kind of notices it. And cut back to Daniel. Now he's in the snowy place with the hut and the picture in the snow. Did you happen to notice the picture in the snow? So obviously this is Olick. Yep. Based on what you saw, there was a picture in the snow. And then there was a track of blood leading to that hut. And that's all that we could pretty much see in that scene. Based on what you saw, what do you think happened there? Um, 
don't know if I particularly have as maybe negative thoughts as people want to believe. I mm-hmm. kind of because it's a pretty rural shot, so I kind of want to assume that maybe he was just out hunting or something like that, and you know he just took his his kill back to go and start processing it or something like that. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, with the picture on the ground, though, right, and the blood, right, you kind of, kind of want to assume that something happened with his brother. I'm thinking that's his brother's blood, and his brother's body is in that cabin. Yeah, yeah. Just a guess, though. I don't know. Um, I don't know if we're going to find out, or never will. (laughs) At this rate, who knows? Oh, at this point, though, he peels off another layer of the sky to reveal another hatch. And I thought it was interesting the way he saw that because he kind of had a flash of that hatch before he ran at it. So he was surveying the, surveying the scene, like, what's going on here? And then he saw a quick flash of that thing. And then he knew to go there and manipulate it and open the hatch. So, um, again, I'm watching this with Heather. Heather was saying she thought it was a glitch because the, the program is getting ready to run out soon. She thought it was just merely a glitch and he happened to see it. I happen to think that it was a memory because he keeps telling Mara to remember things. And that's what the boy Elliot is trying to get her to do too, is remember stuff. And as she remembers things, she sees these flashes so I think Daniel remembers that flash because he knew that passageway was there previously and just forgot maybe because he helped build this place or maybe he had just been there on a previous Kerberos journey and just had a flash memory. But that's how he knew to get there. I just wanted to explain that, you know, that's the reason that he went at that and, you know, made his way to another portal. <laughs> It's break time here, Nate. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All righty. Just heard a little bit of me. That's intro void. Uh, one called human drivers of fire. I try to do electronic music too, just like the people in Dark do, and just like people at 1899 do, and that's my poor attempt at it. So yeah, check it out. We're back here in this episode though. We are down in the boiler room where everybody's working. They're all shoveling coal, and Lucian stumbles, and Jerome comforts, and everybody arrives at this point and grabs their partner. (laughs) I like this, where Ramiro and Angel embrace... And then um, Clements embraces Lucian, gives some eyes to Jerome. And then Franz is like, huh, Tove, you going to bring it in? And then, but Tove is like, no, we, we have an emergency going on here. We need to find the captain. Uh, so Franz jumps into, you know, he's for a mutineer. He's doing pretty good here. He instructs Oleg to go up and you know, right in the ship, do some steering and he's going to go close. What did he say? Some bulkheads. He's going to go close the bulkheads. I don't know what a bulkhead is, but 
I guess, is those big doors, right? Yeah. Uh, why would we trust Ulrich to go up and steer the ship and not Franz? I'm not sure. Um, maybe because, because they, I'm thinking because Franz is thinking he's the big tough guy to go close those big old bulkhead doors is my guess. I guess. I just, I don't know. When they made that decision, I was kind of taken aback by it. Oleg shovels coal. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I don't it, know. He doesn't know the operations of the ship, I guess. Yeah, you're exactly right. It does seem like Oleg should be closing those bulkhead doors. That's more of like a, you know, a grunt job. And yeah, Franz should be grabbing that wheel because he's up on the bridge all the time. But there's a couple yeah. of weird decisions. An even weirder decision comes up later, and I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> Another poor decision on the character's part. But for here, um, yeah, they got their jobs now. It seems like they're, they're going to do the thing. They're going to keep the engines running. And an important thing that Franz tells Olick is to stay parallel. No, no, not to stay parallel to the waves. Because if they do, then they'll capsize. They stay parallel to the waves. The waves will crash on top of them. So obviously that's important. It might be something that people didn't know. Like I didn't know, for example, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> so where are we going here? Olek and Ling, Ling Yi decides to go up on the bridge with them too. Olek doesn't really raise much of a fuss, but that just leaves Ramiro and Angel to shovel coal. I kind of think that Tove and Ling should have stuck behind to help shovel coal while the other guys did their jobs. It doesn't seem like steering the ship is a two-person job, even though they made it a two-person job. And closing those bulkhead doors is also not a two-person job. You're going to make Tove shovel coal and she's pregnant? Wasn't she doing it before they got... No, she was. that's right. She was... Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. She gets a break. I forgot she was pregnant. I'm just thinking about the <laughs> Tove in the hayfield who was not pregnant. I kind of <laughs> forgot about that fact. Yeah. There's a lot to think about here. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> Mara's still off on her own, though. Everybody else is, like, teamed up. She's off on her own here. She does have that little funny device, and that makes her think about Daniel's room, obviously. So she goes over to Daniel's room, 1013. And she finds his hatch and a picture of her on top of the hatch. So she goes down to his hatch to discover his world where it leads to, you know, their apartment that they like to make out in and read books in. That's the only thing they do in their apartment, I think, is read books and make out. So I want to be in Daniel's world. I like his world the best. So it doesn't, doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I know. Uh, but she has flashes of memories of um, making love to Daniel. But we also get a couple of weird shots in there of like shot injections while she's thinking about those memories. There's also like bad stuff coming up. And on the nightstand, she finds a bunch of photos, which leads us to the conclusion that they are a happy family. Mora, Daniel and the boy who we now will. I don't think we've learned yet that his name is Elliot, but we now know his name is Elliot. And they were like nice little three family, three piece family unit there. Looked happy as could be. And it did not look 1899 in those pictures to me. No. And that apartment did not look 1899 either. Well, that's the one thing 
we thought in the very beginning of the show, obviously 1899 is 1899. And then second episode or whatever, when we see the TV screens, they're the really old ones. We were like, oh, it must be like the 70s. Right. And it just seems like it's grown in decades to now we got people with iPads and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's seems pretty, pretty modern. Yeah, like modern or future, perhaps. I mean... I mean, it's a simulation, so it's definitely the future. Yeah. Daniel, though, he's back at that um, at the mental institution, which is like Mara's uh, memory slash dream. He goes right to the grave, and I was right. That is the boy's grave, but it's not only the boy's grave. It's the boy's doorway to his little uh, boring-ass room. <laughs> he's got some old school toys in there like old hipster style toys you would see like you know downtown moms like oh you don't need an ipad you need a a zebra with a (laughs) yeah he's got all those kind of toys um but yeah this is a big scene he calls daniel dad big hug dad and son talking about mom you know, I haven't found the code yet and I haven't found mom doesn't remember yet, but we're going to do this son. I mean, this was some big stuff. Uh, he gives him the ring, gives Daniel back that wedding ring. And that of course is significant. And I think what it is, I do think that Elliot is not like alive, like everybody else is alive. Um, because he's creepy and weird. We've established that. Even yeah. though he's adorable now, but he's still creepy and weird. Uh, he's still creepy, yeah. I think it's the eyes. I think the way they did his eyes is what really lends to that. I think he's just so lifeless. Yeah. There's not really a whole lot of, like, emotion. Even when his dad comes back down the, um, like, down the hatch, he he seems very blase about it just kind of like oh hey dad what's up you know he's his grandpa's boy grandpa's boy yeah remember his grandpa is henry obviously if mara's the dad then elliot is henry's grandson and that's one of the last things henry said in this episode which we haven't gotten to yet is how everybody's emotions get in their way and their silly emotions and they got to learn to be strong. And maybe Elliot is (laughs) a disciple of that philosophy. What if he is dead and the whole reason for the simulation is to keep him alive? What if they're all dead? I kind of think that, I mean, since you asked that question, that's kind of what I'm Thinking, I'll just give you the, the quick version now is that I think that Elliot died and Mara was so bereft with that, that she asked for all of her memories to be taken from her because she was in so much pain. And so her dad was like, oh yeah, okay, sounds good. <laughs> and he did it. Um, that's the brief version, but I'll go into a little bit more later because I have some things that happened that made me come to that conclusion but now that's what i'm thinking also lost place where we were oh yeah dad and son 
Um, yeah, I said before too how Daniel, the way Daniel talks to him, he's, I don't know. He, in a couple episodes back when we didn't realize that they were father and son, of course, and the way that he was talking to the boy, he was talking in a really restrained, he was really super angry, but he was like restraining himself from being angry at the boy. And now we can see why. Daniel's a good guy. We like Daniel now. He's not wet, man. He's good old Daniel. <laughs> He's not so wet. Not so wet anymore. He's all dry now. Okay, Sebastian has had some luck with his iPad. And he has he can zoom outside of the ship because you can look at his screen that he's scrolling all those uh, memory worlds. And he finds uh, Elliot in his little memory world and he sends a quick note to Henry with the triangles, which is kind of cool. And then we cut back to Olick and Ling. They're up at the rudder taking the wheel. Um, They're the ones that are steering the ship. And this is the scene that I saw that I was spoiled by. I um, saw a post on Instagram and it was just, you know, the real life Daniel, Mora and Olick sitting there on set, you know, with their modern hairdos talking about, you know, stuff. And then um, the actor who plays Olick was like, you know, oh man, when I was driving the ship, that was crazy. And they cut to a scene of like him and Ling, like struggling with the ship in the storm. And I quickly turned it off real quick. I was like, oh no, what have I done? Uh, <laughs> this is the scene that I saw. Um, so I was, I knew this was going to happen. I know the whole story backwards and forwards at this point. It's because I saw this scene. <laughs> Um, but that's all. We don't really see much more yet. We're going to come back to them, of course. Um, Daniel, though, is climbing up the hatch to room 1011. Uh, he goes in his room to his hatch, and he sees that picture of Moore there. There's a lot of pictures. A lot of people looking at pictures in this episode. <laughs> so he sees the picture of Mora, which I guess tells him, uh-oh, Mora's down there. Uh, so he goes looking for her. Uh, he finds Mora in his apartment and they have some nice gentle talk where he, you know, calmly explains to her that Elliot is her son and that she indeed can have kids, that that's a false memory that was implanted in her. Um, he says to her that you, you wanted to forget, you wanted to get rid of the pain just as I was saying before, where I was thinking that maybe Elliot had died and then she wanted to get rid of all those pains of his death. And this leads me into another (laughs) reference to this show, which is being like eternal sunshine of the spotted mind. Have you seen that or know what that is? No. Yeah. It's a Jim Carrey movie where the main character does exactly this. He breaks up with his girlfriend and it's like hurts him so much he hires scientists to um, remove her memory from his mind. And that's what the movie is based on. And that's kind of what it seems like what Mara is, could be doing here. Daniel's urging her to remember and she kind of remembers again, she's getting those weird memories of like the brains and like the, the syringes and stuff. They do end up kissing, which is nice. I think this is the first time that, Mara has kissed anybody that we've seen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go Mara. But they break the kiss though. And Daniel straight up tells her and us 
This is a simulation. Straight up. Uh, he's not so straight up after that because, you know, she's asking him more questions and he's sticking to the Plato's cave allegory, which I like a lot. I think there should be a Void Master song with this theme about the cave allegory where you're watching shadows on the wall and you believe the shadows are real. But really, that's not what's real. What's real is behind your back. He doesn't really he doesn't really tell her any like solid information. He just tells her that she has to wake up and that or she'll be trapped in her unconscious forever. Um, They dash off to try to leave in time before it all restarts. Is this where I get my numbers? No, that's a little further down. We get some numbers. I don't know. Any thoughts about the Daniel Mara situation? Now that we know everything. It's just frustrating because you're not sure why he knows everything and why she doesn't know anything. Right. So it make it it makes you just want to keep watching. And you're lucky. I almost just finished it. I almost just finished eight. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to finish the show. And then I was like, yeah, Steve, Steve will kill me. I thought about doing the same thing too, man. I was like, what does it matter now, buddy? I'm just going to go ahead and watch it. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to ruin this episode for that one. Olick and Ling, they're having a tough time at the wheel. Um, Virginia's arm is paralyzed, I guess. And she finds a letter She's been rummaging through like drawers trying to find this letter. So then she finds it. She bends over weeping and we pan out and Henry is watching her. And that's pretty much like the last we see of Virginia until later on in the episode. So we don't know why she was frantically looking for that letter that she's already read. I know she's already read that letter, right? I don't know. Did you notice? Did it look sealed or no? It looked unsealed to me. Did you have a different opinion? I didn't really get a close enough look at it. Okay. But I know that Henry was watching her with a lot of interest and she was very tore up. And so that makes me think that she and Henry have some sort of relationship. Wife, maybe? Is that the mother? I don't know. What if she is uh, the same level as Daniel? She's hyper aware of everything and she acknowledges what's going on. And maybe the letter was just, you know, Henry's way of being like, hey, sorry, we got to do this all again. I would agree with you, except for the fact that she... um didn't know what to do with that peer, that crystal and she touched it and then she's been freaking out. What's that? Maybe she never, maybe she never had to experience that before. Well, I think anybody else on the boat, like Daniel, Sebastian, the boy, they know what's up with the crystals. So if she was in on it, she would know too. So it seems like they work or had something to do with the simulation itself. Mm -hmm. What if, She's Henry's wife, and in some, I don't want to say it's like a form of punishment, but like maybe he's just kind of like, 
you're part of the game now. You're part of the experiment, whether you want to be or not. Maybe that's what all these people are. Yeah. I'm, well, for her, yeah, I, I definitely think that. I'm almost thinking, based on my wild theory that Mara wants to forget stuff like the death of Elliot, I'm thinking perhaps that they signed up for this. Like Angel said in episode one, he was like, you know, we paid good money for this. No trips. I mean, no stops, no detours. Maybe they paid to come on the ship to have their bad memories erased. Romero's memory, Tove's memory. Looks like um, Olick has a bad one. Lucian, I mean, Jerome's memory, I guess. So I guess do you think, mm-hmm. I was going to say, so then do you think, Daniel is trying to save them from that, from having their memories wiped. I'm thinking that um, Daniel started out as just an NPC player that was in Mara's uh, memory, or he was just, I think he's like a misnomer that's not supposed to be there. And I think that he maybe became aware within the simulation Cause he says that he knows codes of how to like do like mm. save points and stuff like that. So he's obviously done this before. So I think he's kind of like outside of the narrative and somehow worked his way in. I don't know. I'm based on nothing. <laughs> I know he's not supposed to be there. So yeah, at this point I said that like uh, Henry's watching Virginia and it's 21 minutes until the shutdown. And I paused the show at this point, and it was the exact same amount of time that it was till the end of the episode as well. thought that was very interesting. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, so Henry gets visited by, I can only call him Lobot, if you know who Lobot is from Star Wars, the ball-headed guy with the mustache and the white clothes. He comes in with his awesome voice and uh, says the good, he's got good news for Henry and Obviously, the good news is that they found the boy. Uh, the guy who did find the boy, Sebastian, he goes to Mara's room. He's looking, around, he's eyeballing her book. We know he's on his way to the grave at this point. Um, there's no other place he could be going. At this point, though, Daniel and Mora are needing to remember the code. They're talking about this. Um, I'm thinking that big red button. Uh, they don't know about that big red button that Sebastian has, but I'm thinking that that could have something to do with their goal that they're trying to do, this code they're trying to remember. But at any point, they're in their room, they're talking, Daniel's explaining to her the whole system, how it's, um, they need to find this this code. And he's saying it could be anything. Um, and he mentions it could be a key and she remembers that she has that locket, which has a key inside of it. And we now know that this locket came with that letter. It's not even her locket. It was just given to her by somebody. She doesn't know who the key opens at this point. She and we don't know what that key opens either, but we do know that father is watching and he's licking his lips at this point. He's watching this all go down and he is loving it, man. So down in the coal shoveling area, this is when uh, Lucian has a Caesar. Seizure. <laughs> he needs his vials, and Clements and Jerome 
come up with the stupidest plan. This is the, what I was telling you about was like the worst character mistake ever. Instead of Clement saying, oh. hey, Jerome, go get those vials from my room. They Let's carry the dude up to the vials. <laughs> Did Were you scratching your head as much as I was when they made that call? Yeah, I'm... <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I watched, I watched this episode this morning. I got up and I got on the treadmill and I had it just streaming and I tripped. I (laughs) not, not tripped to the point where I fell, but when they were like, let's carry him," I was like, Whoa. I was like, are you like, he's, he looks like he's a pretty tall guy. And I mean, he's, he's pretty well built. So I was like, you're probably talking like 215 pounds. Yes. And like, (laughs) That's not something that you just pick up and move, you know, real easy, especially up to an upper level of the ship. I was like, well, you know, to each their own, I guess. Have fun, guys, carrying Lucian up. (laughs) But this is the point I was wrong before. Correction department is back. Um, Lucian and Jerome were shoveling coal with them before, but now they're gone. So now it's just Angel and Ramiro left shoveling coal by themselves, just two dudes trying to operate four smokestacks. I feel sorry for him. Uh, Daniel runs over to that little iPad thing. He knew about it too. He got, he has control of Sebastian's iPad. Uh, he does a little shortcut within the simulation. So this is like the save point I was telling you about that Daniel's kind of gotten privy to. He tells us that every simulation runs eight days. And that the simulation has run dozens of times, which dozens would say 24. So apparently the simulation has run about 200 times or so. And it's a continuous loop. None of the ships ever make it to their destination, according to Daniel. And he hacked this ship so that they can kind of save their game where they are. So the, this is what I was worried, not worried about. I'm very worried, Nate. I'm worried about the Prometheus and it's been gone for four months, or at least it has been gone for four months, according to Mara and her brother in the newspaper. The newspaper had that article about how the Prometheus has been lost at sea for four months. So if the Prometheus is one of these dozens of experiments that have gone, gone on for the every eight days, wouldn't there be like a lot of missing ships besides just the Prometheus? So there's some sort of significance as to why the Prometheus made the news and these other ships did not, unless that's just a decoy within her uh, (laughs) matrix reality. Mm. Uh, um, Unless it's supposed to be important to whatever the purpose of the simulation is. Right. And helps with decision making and things like that with, you know, uh, yeah. emotion, emotions versus logic. You got it. Okay. Yeah. So the letter was sent to Mara letting her know that Daniel's been lost for four months and the letter's urging her to get on this ship. So, yeah, you got that. Okay. Thank you. So now we're going to go to back to the bridge. Ling and Olick are doing their thing. Ling sees her what she thinks is her mom out on the deck. 
So she runs off to go see what's up with that. And then Olik, this is our next brilliant decision. <laughs> Olik leaves the wheel to go run after her. Um, yeah, these people making some rash calls here. <laughs> uh, she's almost swept away by a wave, big time. And we, of course, we know that the, the thing of her mom was just something to get her out on the deck. But Olik does get taken over by a wave and... Now is time we can start crying because Olik got washed over. Olik is more or less gone now. And that's bad news. I don't like that. But here's some good news. I believe that all the players that jumped off the side of the ship, um, including the boy who got thrown off the side of the ship, are all um, savable. They're all replayable. They didn't go anywhere. That's my belief. They just go to the respawn area. Yes. I believe they're all just kind of like in stasis right now, just waiting. I think we're going to see more of, well, if this show continues, we'll see more of Crestor. We'll see more of anybody that jumped off the ship, including like Ling Yi's mom. Um, I think the only people we wouldn't be able to see is somebody that got like actually died on the ship by the cause of like a blow to the head or something like that. I think that would not, you would not be able to come back from that. But if you were just shut off or if you just jumped over the side of the ship, I think you're going to come back. Steve Barnes. (laughs) All right. You heard it here, folks. So I won't be sad about Olick. All right. I guess it's time to take one more quick break because we're almost at the end here, but we are at the hour point. Can you come back for a break, Nate, please? Yes, sir. Oh, boy. Thank you. Okay. All right. We're back. Nate came back, too, didn't you, Nate? I sure did. Right on. Here we got... This is the penultimate episode. We should have said at the beginning, like the episode before the last episode. So a lot of stuff is going to happen from here on out. We just saw Olek die. <laughs> we just heard some interesting noises from Nate's headphones. And Sorry. That's okay. And we're about to lose someone else. We're about to say bye-bye to Lucian. Because even though Jerome and Clements carried him to the bedroom nice and carefully, <laughs> he didn't make it in time for some reason. That's weird. Maybe... <laughs> They should have done something different. But at any rate, he's dead and we're sad. And then Angel. Angel gets crushed. This is this is what I was telling you about people falling off the side of the ship and stuff like that. Mm. Angel gets hit by something physical and gets crushed. So I don't know if he's going to be coming back or not. Am I? Am I just – I mean – I didn't have anywhere to go. I watched this while I was on the treadmill, mm-hmm. but it must have happened super fast that I didn't even really notice him getting crushed until all of a sudden I saw him lying on the ground. So it, it just happened walk, like with, walk me through that again. Yeah, there was just um, simply like a big wave hit the boat. You saw like the front end of the boat completely get underwater. So that's when a majority of the water like took over the boat. And when that happened, it like crushed a lot of stuff in the boiler room and fell on top of Angel. It's that simple. Okay. Okay. 
So yeah, we have to watch Ramiro's grief and Angel die. And Angel's like, why did you fall in love with me? You're a great dude, Ramiro, and I suck. And and he's gone now. And eh, Angel, we, we I loved him and then I didn't like him anymore. And now I like him again. I don't know. I don't want to see him go. Franz and Tove are doing their thing. They're shutting all those ballast doors. Not ballast doors. Uh, what did I call them before? Bulkheads. Bulkhead doors, yes. While they're shutting those doors, uh, Anchor and Ivan are pretty much saying goodbye to each other and their God. And they're disagreeing about the plan of God, but they're obviously still in love with each other. And I think it's significant that anchor is telling her to wake up. He tells her to, you know, wake up from her God reality and see this reality significant. Um, so Franz has to shut the door from his side and they're, they're kind of perplexed. They be in top Tove and Franz. They're like, why doesn't this door have a handle? Obviously the door doesn't have a handle because Henry set it up as a test for them. And obviously Franz quote unquote failed the test by saving Ivan's life here. Um, so that's why Franz had to get on that side of the door because that handle was removed from the other side. So the only way he could save her and the others was by sacrificing himself. So Franz hats off to Franz, the mutineer, the sauce boss laid one final time, but he took one for the team. So we appreciate that Franz. Henry watches all this happen. He watches Anchor and Ivan go down and we see like a nice, they really like gold rings in this episode because they show like Anchor's hand up on the wall and there's a lot of shine and a lot of light coming from his wedding ring. And it looks Mm. a lot like the same wedding ring that Daniel has because when Elliot hand that to Daniel, it had that really weird golden otherly glow about it. Almost like that cabinet when it would glow when the boy and Sebastian would go in that cabinet to like transport that same yes. kind of glow, you know? Yeah. They're saying that wedding rings and vows are important. <laughs> That's what they're trying to tell us. <clears throat> That's the point of the show kids. <laughs> so yeah, Henry's watching all this stuff going down and then we're in the room with Henry. Sebastian brings Elliot to Henry now and they're in the pyramid world he brings the pyramid itself to Henry and obviously this is his grandson and we were talking before about the emotions about how emotionless he usually is he's kind of a little weepy here he doesn't Elliot's not loving everything that's being said here and he's not liking the situation he is crying but granddad is telling him you know it's these people and their foolish emotions what did he say I wrote it down because I wanted to quote it. Um, They can't get rid of their emotions. It makes them weak and flawed. Those silly feelings that cloud the mind. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, that's what I do like on purpose. I, I like to have silly thoughts and silly feelings to cloud my mind, like on purpose, Henry. I enjoy that. I don't want to sit in pyramid world and gaze at death all day. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that line of thinking? I can respect it. If you have a goal that's strong enough in mind 
and it's something you truly want to achieve, I can see how emotions become irrelevant and more of a hindrance. Sure. So I can, I can understand that and I can sympathize with that to some degree, but you know, emotions are what make us who we are, whether we like to admit that or not. And depending on whatever they are, Yeah, I agree. Um, I guess he doesn't. He I guess he has like an idealized version of what a person should be. And maybe he's trying to raise Elliot in that way. And that's why he's saying all these creepy things to Elliot. And I don't know. I don't know. Mara and Daniel are trying to go back. But for whatever reason, like their hatch is gone from the floor now. Like the physical hatch that was there before is now gone. And... Daniel does the same thing he did with um, Elliot earlier. He's like super pissed and he's like, like wants to rage, but he restrains himself and like is calm to Mora instead of, you know, being a maniac. And we hear, this is when Henry announces on the PA comes overhead, says, you've come far this time. Using the Prometheus to gain access was a smart move, but you failed. Your little reprogramming won't work. So what Henry wants here is he wants the pyramid. And no, he has the pyramid and the boy, but now he wants the key. That's the last thing he needs. And he says he's willing to trade the boy for the key. Um, So obviously the key does something important. It looks like the key goes into the pyramid and you can do something with that or whatever. But I thought it was interesting when he said... Using the Prometheus to gain access was a smart move. Meaning that that was Daniel that did that. That sent the coordinates to the captain Mm -hmm. in the first episode. That was Daniel. Mm -hmm. So Daniel then at that point came on board. And when the captain made the decision to turn around... Like, he was very much against that decision. But it seems like that's a decision he should have wanted. So I was just kind of wondering if you think that Daniel is kind of playing, like, double agent to Mara's benefit? Or if there's something even weirder going on? Or if you don't know? <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, I, I really don't know. We like, end the scene with him running off to Henry. Like he takes the key from Mora and he's like en route to Henry. And here's another speculation. How do you think he's going to get there? The cabinet. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. I was thinking the hatch gone. How else can he do it? Hopefully the cabinet's still there. Okay. Accepted. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Kerberos is going to be moved to the archive into that big old shipyard with all the other ships. And yeah, at this point we got Ling Yi. She's on the deck still and she gets the advantage of being on the deck to see as the Kerberos either goes up or down this cool ass watery tunnel. Um, She's at the helm watching this happen. The light takes them. I was on the edge of my seat for this one. Did you fall off your treadmill when you saw this scene? (laughs) It was pretty neat. It was a pretty cool shot. 
uh, it was even neater, I thought, when they when they um, arrived at the the shipyard. It was a nice, gentle um, arrival. I thought it might be treacherous, but obviously we can see how the um, Prometheus got all messed up. If the Prometheus did the exact same thing, it's going to be a pretty messed up, dinged up ship inside there. Yeah. So this whole time, Ike's been AWOL. We flash back to him finally at the end here where he's been stuck in the Prometheus drinking that liquor, um, not having a great time, but he seems like he senses that something, there's a, there's a change in atmosphere. I don't know if maybe the storm had stopped at that point or like maybe he heard the whirlpool of the ship come in, but he goes to see what's up and hell yeah, it's the crew. Um, he's on his ship. They're on their ship. The Daniel's little save point obviously worked because none of them are supposed to be there. They're all supposed to be wiped away with everybody else. But instead, we've got Ike, Mora, Jerome, Clements, Virginia, Ling, Ramiro, and Tove. So there's eight of seven on one ship, one on the other. And that's our crew right now. Uh, they gaze longingly at each other across the ships. Um, I guess Mara at this point knows that, you know, she can't love him, but obviously she has feelings for him. Very obviously. Um, would it be too weird to think that, because it's obvious they have feelings for each other, but at this point, you know, nothing has occurred between them. They haven't even like really hugged each other at this point or anything. Is it possible that he's her brother and just doesn't remember his memories either? Or would that be too weird? <laughs> like Luke Skywalker weird. I mean, it could be that, that that's a little weird, but um you know, I I don't I think that that's a pretty plausible theory. I think that that's that's actually that's actually excellent. Yeah. I weird. Thought, weird. Uncomfortable. Right. That's that's some of that down south stuff. No, but nothing <laughs> happened. Nothing happened. They're fine. <laughs> all they did was grasp arms and look at each other in the eye for a little too long. That's all that happened. <laughs> that's how it starts, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It sure is. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. I had to throw that one in there. No, that's great. <laughs> I was disappointed with our song. I mean, this is a beautiful song by Cat Stevens, um, The Wind of My Soul. And I know why they chose this song. Um, I was underwhelmed by it, but it was still beautiful. I mean, everybody on the 1899 board loved it. And they're mad at me now for saying it's a mediocre song. But I was, I'm a rock and roll guy. I, I, like, I, I really wanted something more than this. But they chose this because of these two lines. I'm theorizing that they chose this song because of these two lines. One being, I'll never make the same mistake again, obviously. And this one, they, they end the episode with this line. I never wanted water once. <laughs> so that brings us to the spoiler portion of our show. I'm about to spoil the book, The Awakening by Kate Choban. Um, so if you don't want to be spoiled by it, go ahead and fast forward. But this book was released in 1899 and it's a novel set in New Orleans. And it's basically a struggle between 
an unorthodox woman and her unorthodox view on femininity and the standards of the South at the time of femininity. So she was, you know, always struggling with this within the novel, the main character was. In the social attitudes of the South and the traditions, you know, she just wasn't part of that. In the book, this main character believed that if she drowned herself in the sea and faked her death, then she would be free of all this. In the end of the book, that is what the character does. She goes to the sea and to the reader's mind, it looks as if she goes to the sea and drowns herself in the end. But it's led to make you speculate. Um, did she really drown herself? Is she really dead? Or did she just fake this death so she could start a new reality? Um, so Mara in our story has been reading this book. Uh, she's also been reading 12 Years a Slave as well. Um, that's also on her um, bookshelf there in the ship, not in she and Daniel's room. So yeah, The Awakening, Kate Tripp Ann. Sounds like a real uh, <laughs> fun one for the family. <laughs> Let's see, at this portion of the show, Nate, we are done. So did you have any thoughts about the end of this episode? You said that uh, you thought this ep- this episode ended with a, you said a storm and you weren't quite sure where it was going. Yeah, this is probably the first time where uh, I just think that there's too much to give a true general direction for what's going to go on for next episode. I think that there's just too many loose ends that even to end it, I mean, even just even just as a season, an episode leading up, what'd you call it? The penultimate? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that, that this episode, episode seven, was, was the penultimate, and I just don't know how they'll wrap any of the loose ends up for eight. Because then you still have to build enough hype for the following season, mm-hmm. which at this rate, we don't know if we're getting somewhere else or not at all. But, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually pretty eager to talk about, talk about it next week. Yeah. Well, the way I see it, we got, um, our eight characters, they're on the ship. They're not supposed to be on. So there's, there's no portals. There's no hidden worlds or any of that on the ships that they're currently on. They're just stuck on physical old ships. And Daniel is on his way to try to get the key to our man, Henry. So I kind of get the feeling that we're probably going to see um, the inner workings of our simulation next episode. Um, Cause it seems like Henry. Um, yeah. It seems like Daniel and Henry are where the action is going to be because they're the ones that are actually doing something. The rest of the crew right now is recovering from what just happened. I mean, yeah. obviously something's going to happen with them. I don't know what Henry's going to have to rethink <laughs> his plan. <laughs> but we didn't get any letters this week, but we did get from our friend Lindsay Dunn. She gave us a lot of stuff to discuss this episode. And that's what I'm getting ready to pull up. These are some notes that she sent you and I over the past week that I wanted to share with the listeners. 
uh, she wrote about the medal that Lucian gave Jerome. She says, I was just looking into this medal that Lucian stole from the lieutenant. The exact war is still up for grabs. Although I'm leaning, I being Lindsay, am leaning towards the Mandingo War. That was the last part of the colonization of Africa. That's one I didn't even consider, Nate. I, I considered four other wars, but not this one. She goes on to say, the medal is called the French Legion of Honor Officer Medal Type 3. It was handed out during the Republic period from 1870 to 1940. But she says, but get this. At this time, the French foreign policy was based on fear of Germany. They were just too strong economically, so French people were terrified of Germans, which might explain the immediate hatred between Jerome and Franz, a French person and a German person. Mm. She says, although I expect Franz to be pretty racist, we know now, we're not going to tell her, but we know that Franz is a good guy, but let's keep pretending that the sauce boss is a bad guy for her sake. (laughs) Um, She says, at the time, French dudes were looking for alliances and were attracted to Japan as a prime alliance. So there was an attraction of France to Japan, Lucian and Ling. Which I I like that backstory about the... uh, the metal gives us a little more backstory about that. And I like this. This is what I like a lot. She wrote to me about, she had just finished watching episode four. And that is the one where the boy gets thrown over. And then at the end of the episode, he comes out of the cabinet where he wasn't actually Mm -hmm. thrown over. I didn't even think about this. And she brought it up. She said, let's see. Steve was commenting that it wasn't a very good plan to throw someone overboard to save the rest of the people on the ship. But remember that the third-class passengers are very religious. They believe in signs and bad fortune. If the boy is a saint, a stain, or a Satan, then to get rid of him is the best way to please God as a sacrifice. I also know the creators of the show put a lot of biblical allusions in their stories. So remember the story of Jonah and the whale. Jonah ran away from his assignment. He was supposed to go warn Nevaeh that they would be destroyed if they didn't change their evil ways. Instead, Jonah ran away from God and went on a ship going the opposite direction, just like Ike turned the ship around. When the storm started, Jonah told them that God was displeased and they must save themselves by throwing him overboard. Jonah was thrown overboard and then was swallowed by the fish and resurrected. So the boy is presumed dead, and then he is resurrected in the belly of the ship. I know there is more of the story to come, so please don't spoil anything. Oh, this is just Lindsay asking us not to get too ahead of her. But she says, um, but this solution of sacrificing one person to appease God isn't new, and it's a best practice in many religious communities, especially back in 1899. Thank you. I love it. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah, I don't have anything, anything to add to that. I think it speaks for itself. Um, any thoughts for you? No. No, I think that's it. That is it. Let's wrap it up. The music we were listening to this week was by Intravoid. That was Human Drivers of Fire. It was a split EP I did with Last Action, and I'll put the link in the show notes, of course. And please check out Lindsay's podcast. She has a new podcast now on Apple out there 
It's called One of My Stories. Just got to do the number one of my stories to check out Lindsey Dunn's stuff. And there's a guy named Nate Dunn who does some Void Master stuff. And he's playing out there and recording. And any new news for us, Nate? Um, so I guess for all you cool cats and kittens that uh, didn't know, I moved to Pittsburgh. So we are still trying to hash out some of the details for practicing and getting gigs together and things like that with the boys back in Philly. But uh, right now, we're, me personally, uh, currently working on putting together a new a new project with some new members and things like that and uh, getting out and about and playing around here. So, you know, keep a lookout for, for Voidmaster stuff because we're writing new material and, I don't know, just keep an eye out for all the other nonsense that I'm up to, I guess. How about you, Steve? What's uh, what's new and exciting with you? What, what about Intervoid, Rebecca Crow? Rebecca Crow, I think I might be ready to put out that Ode to Joy song. I played it for my friend Scott a couple days ago, and he deemed it as good enough to, to be released, but there's still a couple of drum parts where the drums don't exactly line up with the bass, <laughs> so I want to fiddle with that some more. That's the newest thing you're probably going to see from me is a new Rebecca Crow song. Thank you for asking. All righty. Excited to hear it. But you, Nate, up there in your Pennsylvania world, I hope you always find water and shade no matter where you go. I appreciate it. I hope you find water and shade, Steve. Thank you very much to all our listeners. Have a good one. We'll see you all next week with episode eight. Bye-bye. Take care.